The production of this program is made possible thanks to the support of Audlin Brown, BD Development, Stem Cell Technologies, and listeners like you. The Government of British Columbia is aiming to lower CO2 emissions by 40% by 2030. It's a bold ambition, one that will reduce the BC economy as well by a staggering 28 $0.1 billion, according to a model created by the government's Clean BC Roadmap. Ken Peacock, the Business Council of British Columbia's chief economist, examined the model and discovered the stunning numbers. Peacock says a $28.1 billion setback is significant. Then add in emissions caps and a scheduled doubling of the carbon tax over the next seven years. Well, Peacock then points out that will dampen investment and cap exports. Peacock goes on to say, we're concerned about serious job losses and serious impact to income over the next six years. Canada is already the poorest performing country in the OECD in per capita GDP growth. And according to BCBC's analysis, Provincial average economic growth will slow to 0.4% in the second half of this decade. I invited Ken Peacock to join me for a conversation that matters about setting realistic goals and timelines. Is that, Ken, first of all, welcome. Thank you. But is it that we're setting such an unrealistic uh, timeline to hit this 40% reduction by the end of this decade that it can't help but have a significant impact on economic growth. Yeah, yeah the, um, <clears throat> you're, you're absolutely right uh, at the business company. We stumbled upon these modeling results and, and when you look through them and look at the, the reality that there's impacts right across the economy, and that the $28.1 billion you identified is, is indeed very large. Uh, it, it is the reality that because these timelines are rushed six, six or seven years from now, and because we are only about one and a half or 2% below our 2007 base, base year, and we need to make up another 37 or 38% over that short six year period. It's the combination of the short timeline and the magnitude of the reduction in GHGs that is kind of causing this, this economic impact. It's all too much, too quick, basically, Steve. Well, you talked about it across the entire economy, and I looked at that slide. And to, you know, to be specific, this isn't a slide that you created. No. You took it right out of their modeling reports. How is it that what we're doing as far as the Clean BC roadmap is concerned, having such a dramatic impact on so many sectors? Yeah, it's this, uh, there, were, there was a, a couple things and we'll get into it later probably, but when we literally stumbled upon these modeling results, they're in an Excel spreadsheet. It's very unusual uh, to, to produce these results in an Excel spreadsheet with no documentation or discussion and then just post it in a, kind of an obscure, hidden out of the way spot on the government's website. Uh, th that's a bit unusual. So the, the first surprise was opening up and stumbling upon that uh, website and seeing the magnitude of the top line number. But then the second surprise, e equally concerning, was the fact that every sector in the economy 
uh, is smaller under this Clean BC plan than it otherwise would be. And in particular, the, the foundational export sectors are really hit hard. So our mining, our, our forestry, our, our natural gas, and even agriculture, all, all of these are dampened down. And then you get these negative spin-off uh, effects when you, when you kind of hollow out or, or damage those, those foundational sectors. So the result is literally, they, they, in the model results, there's 24 different sectors. Every one of them is smaller under the Clean BC scenario except for electricity generation and electricity transmission. And that makes sense, of course, because Clean BC is electrification plan as well. So we talk about that there's gonna be this reduction in the economy, but if one of the hardest hit sectors is those export sectors, that has a compounding problem on the economy as well, because the only way that economies grow is that you're bringing extra money in. Absolutely. And if we're actually limiting the opportunity to bring in that extra money, it's like a double whammy. It's a double whammy, yeah. It's, you know, we've done a lot of work at the Business Council over, over the years on this. And when you're a small trade-dependent economy like BC is, uh, the way to prosperity and, and additional wealth and prosperity and job growth is through growing that export base. Because if you're just servicing the domestic market, there's by, by definition, you can only expand so much uh, population growth or, or whatnot. But uh, attracting capital investment, building facilities, uh, mining activity, tourism, all these things, anything that generates export revenue provides a big lift, adds to productivity, typically export sectors pay higher wages. So all of this is very good and positive for the economy, but under the Clean BC plan, these, these foundational export sectors, uh, I mean, not to get into it too much, Stu, but the, uh, so far I've been talking about the economy being smaller. There's a reference scenario in the modeling work, and then there's a scenario with the Clean BC policies um, and I've been talking about the difference between those two, but in these foundational export sectors, uh, the, the reduction in investment and, and the reduction in the expansion of economic activity, it's actually not expansion, is so large under the Clean BC plan that the mining sectors and some of these others are actually smaller in 2030 than they are in 2020. So this isn't a, de a decline compared to a base scenario, this is outright decline. The sector smaller in 2030 than it currently, or than it was in 2020 or even 2025. So this is a world of uh, closing down mills, which mills uh, operate at half time, uh, which communities uh, you know, have, have job impacts and, and, and dislocations. It's very much the case when, when you dampen down investment that much into that degree. Well, do we have an estimate on what the job losses will uh, amount to? Yeah, that's a good question. So they, the modeling work is silent on jobs and, and the job impact. I've taken a, a run at trying to develop some estimates. It sort of looks like over the decade, it would be a couple hundred thousand fewer jobs, 200,000 fewer jobs. Between 200, 200 Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's a because of the 20, 28 billion. So that's over the decade. But if we look between, say, because we're already at 2023, almost 2024, if we look between what the modeling is saying between 2025 and 2030, 100, 120,000 fewer jobs as a result of the Clean BC plan. Very, it's a very plausible estimate, uh, it completely in line with the uh, modeling results uh, in terms of GDP impacts.
The production of this program is made possible thanks to the support of Audlin Brown, BD Development, Stem Cell Technologies, and listeners like you. So we know the parent BD recently, uh, uh, Canadian Chamber of Commerce said, Canada has now developed a reputation as a no-can-build place. There's nowhere that, that we can build. Um, and uh, you talked earlier about uh, investment not coming here. Mm -hmm. This is a very real concern. And so then you add in these further costs and complications. What's the likelihood of us attracting new capital? This, this is the fundamental challenge. Um, <laughs> I would say there's already a challenge. It's uh, the competitive environment in BC is, is already challenged. Uh, you can see that in the forest sector in particular. There's not a lot of capital that's flowing south of the border for investment. Well, and we also know the BC uh, lumber giants aren't even investing in British Columbia. They're investing elsewhere. That's right. Yeah, yeah. So that's, it's, like, it, that's already known. That, that is already known, and it, it's it's uh, it's clear and evident in forest sector. Uh, mining is a very, very good opportunity for British Columbia. Lots of upside opportunity. But what you were speaking about a moment ago is is definitely the case. Uh, challenges advancing permits and getting them done in a timely manner and, and uh, other complications. And then you start to layer in the policies in the Clean BC thing. And you've alluded to a couple of them. Hard emission caps is one of the big challenges. So this this is putting a cap on the amount of CO2 emissions per, that are even permitted or allowed uh, in the sector. So that's very challenging when technologies are not available, carbon sequestration and stuff's not commercially viable. So there's not a lot of alternatives. In the mining sector, there's this need to switch over to uh, electric vehicles uh, in the mine site and stuff. And those big vehicles do not exist uh, yet. So. Well, and how are you going to deliver that power to remote sites? And then we've got the, the, the electricity challenge. There's not enough electricity being generated uh, to, to realize this plan. So when you start to look through it, there's layers and layers of challenges and problems and difficulties. And getting back to your kind of question or your point, the, the cost, uh, you quickly get to the question of whether a project is financially viable mm -hmm. um, just because of the cost and complications. And there is some work uh, coming from completely independent sources uh, out of, out of uh, our large banks, the Bank of Montreal, uh, their their investment uh, element or wing of the bank there, did a very careful analysis of the viability to uh, invest and make large, ad advance large projects in, in BC. And they essentially come to the conclusion that for much of industry, it will not be investable. It just, it cannot work. Given the framework of this output-based pricing system, hard caps, $170 a ton carbon tax, standards, layers, stretch goals, all these things make it very, very difficult. Well, so that's mining, which you might go, okay, well, it has an environmental footprint. One of uh, the objectives here in British Columbia for quite some time, but uh, really ramping up now, is the development of a clean hydrogen or green hydrogen sector. Mm -hmm. We've got a major Australian uh, investor who wants to build just such a plant mm -hmm. up near Prince George. And it's as though this is the ideal project that would fit in with the Clean BC roadmap, and yet now the roadblocks are starting to appear and it's putting that investment potentially in jeopardy. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. What's the message that we're sending? We are, we are sending 
a, a message to international investors and international capital that, that right now BC is a hard place to advance projects um, for some of the reason we, reasons we've cited. Uh, and it could, and if the Clean BC plan is implemented in its current, in its current uh, the way it's currently envisioned, it will get much, much worse. The production of this program is made possible thanks to the support of Audlin Brown, BD Development, Stem Cell Technologies, and listeners like you. So for somebody who's listening up to about this point, they might go, ah, there's a couple of guys who are just, they're uh, climate deniers. They're mm -hmm. not uh, really uh, concerned about the environment. They're just pointing their, their finger at the economics. I think it's uh, Roger Pilkey Jr. calls uh, this friction point between climate policy and economics, uh, the iron law. Mm -hmm. um, and he says, unfortunately, climate policies always lose when it starts to come down to the cost to individual uh, taxpayers and voters' uh, quality of life. Mm -hmm. And so my concern is that people will want to dismiss this as being, okay, you don't care. But that's not what we're saying. That's not what we're saying. What we're talking about is, is the challenge really the fact that we're trying to do this by 2030 rather than by 2050? And what happens if we set our sights on a far more realistic goal? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. This is, I think this is exactly the question. So, so thank you. Thanks for bringing that up. No, this is not, this is not a, a question of, the, no, the, obviously the climate is changing. Obviously there's concerns and obviously we need to pay attention to reducing carbon emissions. And that needs to be a global effort and BC and Canada need, need to play the role. Absolutely. But, yeah, yeah. yeah. So let's you know, make, make that clear. And, and that is certainly the case. But when you start to get into the costs and these six-year timelines, and then you start to recognize the proportion or share of BC's greenhouse gas emissions in the global <laughs> landscape, and it gets <laughs> very, very small. So it, it becomes, I think, very reasonable to ask, you know, whether we should rush headlong so quickly when there's good evidence that it'll be economically destructive. And it's not, it's not our evidence, it's the government's own effort to understand what the implications are. And I mean, to think that they didn't work hard on it would be foolish. I mean, this is multiple rounds of modeling. This is bringing in other people from other areas to try and understand it. Um, I wasn't involved in it, but I, I can tell you almost with certainty they would have, you know, many iterations, Hundreds of thousands, millions. So this is the best effort to understand what's going on. And when it's signaling a $28 billion hit, perhaps we should recalibrate a little bit. Well, not only did you discover it, and as you pointed out, I, it looks like it was exhaustive work. Uh, it's it there. Was, it is, it is. And, and it was hiding in plain sight. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yep. But they didn't announce it. They didn't come out and say, okay, this is what we're going to mm -hmm. do, but be prepared. Mm -hmm. uh, you're all going to have to pay a bigger price rather than on, the, is on top of the carbon tax that you're paying now. Yeah. Yeah. There, there is going to be a significant uh, a economic impact. So you, you have to say, okay, how do we become more realistic, especially uh, when you consider how long it takes to transition? What are the challenges that we need to uh, keep in mind when we set 
longer timelines or, or maybe moving those challenges aside in building out the infrastructure that's required for us to achieve our goal. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. They, uh, I, and I hope we'll come back to that, the infrastructure resiliency uh, and, and building out to resist more extreme climate events and I, I think is an important piece of this. That's where some of the, uh, of this comes up, comes, but the, the long, the, the long-term uh, build out, I think we need time for technologies to emerge um, and, and companies and businesses to ad- adapt. But I think if we're going to think about moving forward, we need to be honest with ourselves and, and understand BC's situation. Okay, so early on, let's go back to 2007. The, it was in the Liberal government at the time announced they were going to introduce a carbon tax. Finance Minister Carol Taylor. Finance Minister Carol Taylor. <laughs> right. And then 2008, it was brought in at $10 a ton. Uh, revenue neutral on a, re- on, a, on a revenue neutral principle right uh, and at the time the business council said it was important to understand BC already had a low carbon low carbon content products low emission low, low carbon grid because of our hydro right we were very fortunate to have this hydro so there was never right from the beginning a lot of options for switching away because we already we were already largely electrified with clean energy mm-hmm. other jurisdictions have switched from coal to natural gas they Alberta being main, one of Alberta. Them. so he yep. said bc never had that option and then in addition to that we've have had a carbon tax in place for 15 years so there was not a whole bunch of low-hanging fruit, but because of the effect of that carbon tax over the 15-year period, companies have made investments, they have uh, moved to reduce emissions. So that sort of medium-level fruit has already been harvested. That mm-hmm. brings us up to 22, 23. Everything that's left is high-cost abatement. Because of our low starting point, we've had this carbon tax. Uh, this is another reason that the economic damage is so significant. Well, and that, and carbon, that reality has to be recognized. Right. And that carbon tax is no longer revenue neutral. Right, right. It is a tax. Mm-hmm. And so they've now taken that tax from what was supposed to be uh, an environmental uh, initiative and drawn it into general revenue. General, ab- absolutely. Absolutely. And I, for a long time, I used to say to my colleague, uh, colleagues and conversations over coffee, you know, it's, it's one thing when the carbon tax is $30 a ton, government's collecting a billion dollars, it's a revenue neutral system, they're giving a little time. It is an entirely another situation when the carbon tax is 65, 70, 80, they're collecting 3 billion, going up to 6 billion, and it's non-revenue neutral. This is a, a big tax grab. And then if you read the Clean BC plan, there is an inordinate amount of central planning-like activity. We're giving, channeling this money here, this amount above $30 a ton goes here, there, uh, it, it really is astonishing. Uh, the complexities and the, and the, the, the reshuffling and, of money and, uh, around uh, in that plan, it's quite remarkable. The production of this program is made possible thanks to the support of Audlin Brown, BD Developments, Stem Cell Technologies, and listeners like you. When we look at the transition that we want to go through to reduce our carbon footprint, and you talked about many of the technologies don't exist so far. Mm -hmm. If we move too quickly, we run the risk of investing in technologies that uh, may get stranded and at the same time strand existing uh, resources. Mm -hmm. How much of a threat is that? Yeah, that's a a good question. Um, I don't know if too many existing 
resources. I guess what will happen is they, they're, they will be depreciated more quickly if they're too costly to operate some of these big assets. Um, I don't, I don't, I don't know. I haven't really thought too much about the the, the risk of what is going to potentially be stranded. I've been so focused on the the risk of what we're not going to realize yeah. <laughs> that I haven't really thought so much about what potentially could get stranded. But it's also a very real concern, I would suspect. Well, so let's also take a look at uh, LNG Canada. Mm-hmm. It's getting close to coming online and uh, producing a product that reduces the amount of carbon fuel that's required to produce uh, the same amount of energy as coal or oil. Mm -hmm. Uh, And this is where the green equation around LNG comes in. We were going to have seven or eight of those uh, kinds of projects built out. Mm -hmm. We're only completing one and we're still waiting for the Heisler Nation to give us their final investment decision on cedar LNG. Mm -hmm. Um, And wood fiber, I I think it's going to go forward. How much are we uh, jeopardizing what we think is supposed to be uh, a fuel that can benefit the rest of the world where the real issues around Mm -hmm. uh, carbon uh, production are concerned and at the same time hampering our ability to bring in foreign uh, revenue? Yeah. Uh, We really have tied ourselves up in knots here. Uh, There's a couple couple pieces there. I think, Mm -hmm. first of all, it is very important to recognize and understand that natural gas and LNG is a transition fuel in the global energy scheme. It's just, there's just no getting around that. It, it is, and it's much less carbon intensive. It has lower uh, carbon and carbon dioxide emissions than coal and whatnot. So we should be pursuing it. But it gets a little bit more perverse than that because, uh, because of BC's hydro grid, because we are already electrified, um, and, and, and this, is, this is something that's been especially frustrating, at the Business Council, we worked very closely with government for, for two or three years, intensely, uh, confirming and analyzing and, and, and proving that BC's products are comparatively lower carbon than competing jurisdictions. Right. So not only is it the case that LNG is good for the uh, global environment and global climate agenda, uh, but BC's LNG is actually lower carbon content than pretty well every other jurisdiction in the world. So as, you know, and it's also the case that if BC doesn't fill some need for global demand or meet that market, another jurisdiction will. So, I mean, this is, it's a bit of a subtle market, but but at the margin, I'm not saying, I'm not claiming this is going to save the world and it's BC's the solution to the climate Mm -hmm. problem. But at the margin, more BC is actually good for the globe yeah. and, the, and the global climate emissions. And we are doing everything in our power to make less BC out there in the global marketplace. So that's weird too. That, that, that's a challenge. That's something I'm really struggling with right now. Well, it will be interesting to see how the government responds to this, whether or not they might uh, start to change their focus on these uh, targets. Mm-hmm. Or, and dates, uh, but they may not. They uh, and then, you know, what the consequences are to individuals, uh, because really this is what it comes down to, uh, how does it impact all of our um, quality of life? Yep. yep. The, um, the reality is, too, the, 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 if we look back over the past five or six years, 
the large capital investments, the projects, LNG, pipelines, Site C Hydro. Uh, those are the big ones. There's a few others in there as well. These have provided a very identifiable and very significant lift to BC's economic growth. For about six or seven years now, they've added uh, about a half a percent to economic growth. So if you kind of back that out, BC's goes from having an above average growth performance uh, in the Canadian context over the past five years to a very average, if not slightly below average. There's nothing in the pipeline. This is, there's nothing, there's in, the nothing pipeline. in the pipeline. No, it, this th is that's the problem. it. Yeah. 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 Uh, I wish that you had a, a brighter uh, <laughs> conversation with me right now, but it's the reality. And the reality. I think it's about time that we start to pay attention to it with, with not saying, oh, if you don't buy into this, you're a denier, but let's, let's set realistic timelines so that we can achieve them. Because if, if we fail, mm -hmm then everything fails. Mm -hmm. Do I have time for one more thought? Sure. The thing I also struggle with is, and rightly so, um, part of this whole Clean BC Road 2035 very much is em embracing clean energy, clean technologies, and, and there's a lot of talk that that's going to be a growth sector. Absolutely the case. But where, what I struggle with is trying to advance the clean tech sector and grow you know, where will it be more successful and where will we have a brighter and more vibrant clean tech sector in an environment where all other industries are smaller and stagnant and smaller than they otherwise would be, but there's this beacon of light in the clean energy, clean tech sector, or all these sectors are vibrant and growing and export and our LNG is contributing to reducing global energy, and we have a vibrant clean tech sector. The latter seems much more likely uh, at, at, in the latter world that the clean tech sector is going to have more success. At least it feels like that to me. I agree. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you for listening. And please visit conversationsthatmatter.ca and become a subscriber. And thank you to Autumn Brown, ED Developments, and Stem Cell Technologies for their support.